You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. Good evening. We'll we'll do that one more time. Good evening. All right, and then for the first time in about four years, I won't actually be here uh, for our Christmas Eve service. We're going to Dallas, which my daughter told Sam Evans tonight in childcare that it's very far away, kind of like Nineveh. So um, give it up for our children's ministry, teaching them some really faithful things. And uh, I hope that uh, Dallas is not quite as far as Nineveh is. But I, I want to say, I say all that to say, Merry Christmas to you. I love you, church. I will miss celebrating uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day with y'all. Um, it's such a joy to be one of your pastors and such a joy to bring the Lord's word to you. We are finishing up our sermon series of Advent, and we've been walking through the first two chapters of Luke, like we just read. And the whole idea of Advent, though the word Advent means coming, it's really a season of waiting. We've been talking about this the past couple of weeks, that it's a season of waiting. We go back and we put ourselves in the shoes of those who have been waiting for hundreds, even thousands of years for the coming of Christ. We remember the anticipation. We check off the days on the calendar, looking forward to the day where we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, our King. But we also are in a season of waiting for the second coming, the advent of Christ, our Lord and King, who will return in glory. And so every Advent, we kind of remember the waiting and we recognize our own waiting. Tonight, we're going to be looking at this text at how do we faithfully wait? How do we wait well? And what are we waiting on? But for us to really, I think, get the most out of this text, we need to to see the broader context, the bigger picture We often talk about how the Bible is the best and truest story ever told. And so Luke is writing to an audience, to a people who are well aware and very familiar with uh, the the Jewish history and the the place and the context that this book is written in, the, the context in which Jesus is born. So I want us to go back and think about what was happening. See, I would argue that the Israelite people, the Jewish people as a people group, stand distinct in history and time. They are people who most of their history don't have a home or place. They're exiled, they're oppressed, they're enslaved. In fact, the the context in which this is written, the Jewish people were living in their land, but it was ruled by the Romans. They have a puppet king and very little real power to do much of anything that they want. Part of the narrative of Christ's crucifixion is that they don't want things to get too rowdy because the Romans will take any freedom that they have away from them. It was a context where they had not heard a prophet proclaim the word of the Lord authoritatively in 400 years. There had been silence. If you are here a couple weeks ago, Cam talked about that silence with the chatter of children all over the place. But it's the the word of the Lord, the law, the Torah that united the Jewish people, following diligently these rhythms, these promises, these hopes, year in and year out, going to the temple, making the sacrifices, being obedient 
to the word of the Lord is what united these people, made them a people. That's true as well as the fact that they were constantly disobedient. The story of the Old Testament is that they continuously failed to live up to the standard that God put on his people. Nonetheless, they longed for a savior. They were uh, people that remembered the word of the Lord. They memorized the scriptures. So I think a very real likely experience is that you might be sitting in your home. Maybe you're in the land of your people. Maybe you're not, but you're a little Jewish girl or boy and you're sitting in your grandfather's lap and you're asking him, when are things going to be better? And he tells you prophecies of long ago that he's memorized like this word from Isaiah 9. You're sitting there and he says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. One day this will come true. We, we trust in the Lord. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest and as they're glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burnt as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, he will do this. Or maybe he talks about how in the book of Ezekiel, he reminds you that a day will come where the dry bones will take on flesh. And the spirit, the ruah of the Lord will dwell in them and he will bring his people back to life. Or later in the book of Isaiah, where he talks about a peace that is coming, where wolves will lay down with lambs, where lions will eat straw like cattle. There was a hope, a longing, and a waiting for a savior, a redeemer. If you were part of the Israelites, in the time of Jesus, you knew that there was really no hope for you other than a miraculous work of the Lord in your midst. You were clinging to this one hope that one day someone would come to redeem and save all things. So how do they miss Jesus? How do they miss the Messiah? How did he end up on a cross? There's a lot of answers to that question. But one of them is that they didn't wait well. What we see in our text today in Luke is we see two people who knew how to wait faithfully, who knew what it looked like to wait faithfully on the Lord. So we're going to look in Luke chapter two. And what Luke's doing is he's continuing to tell the story of Jesus. And we see how he starts off by just reminding us of God's faithfulness and his promises. In verse 21, Jesus is presented for circumcision at the temple and his name officially becomes Jesus. 
Mary and Joseph, Joseph call him what the angels told him his name would be. And then the next thing is kind of where this story takes place. See, in the Jewish culture, the temple was the holy place. It was where the Spirit of God dwelled. It was both church for everybody and the city hall. Lots of things went on at the temple. But it was a place that was supposed to be clean. That's why if you were sick or had a disease or certain things were going on, you were deemed ceremonially unclean and you couldn't come to the temple. One of those things that would make you unclean was if you had recently had a child. For about 40 days, Mary was considered unclean and Joseph with her since they lived together. They were unclean and couldn't come to the temple till that time had passed. Another thing that we should know about this context that's referred to here in the first couple of verses is that the firstborn male of all Israelites was to be dedicated to the Lord and for service to the Lord. What this meant is that it was a reminder first. It was a reminder of what the Lord had done to deliver his people out of Egypt, that he had spared the firstborn son of all of the Israelites, but he had not spared because of their disobedience, the firstborn son of the Egyptians. And so from that point on, they dedicated the firstborn to the Lord as a reminder, a memorial. We need to remember God's faithfulness to his past promises. And that's part of how we wait well for his fulfillment of future promises. And so they would take their sons to the temple and they would either leave them there for service to the Lord or they could redeem them with an offering. Most people, as you would imagine, redeem their sons with an offering. And there's two kinds of offerings that the Old Testament law, the Torah tells us they could have. One was that they could bring a lamb and a turtle dove and that would be the right offering to redeem their firstborn son. But a lamb was of a significant expense. And so if you couldn't afford that, then you would just bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. And so what we see here in the first verses is that the parents are faithful and they go and they do their ceremonial washings and then they present the boy and they make his offering to redeem him. And they bring two pigeons. And I want us to catch this, just to point this out. Jesus was common. He was probably poor. He didn't come from some extraordinary city. He didn't come from a great pedigree. His parents didn't hold some kind of significant office and they couldn't afford to pay the normal offering for a firstborn male. And I just want us to to recognize that Jesus came into a really average, if not below average household. Income wise, stature wise, And myself included, I look around this room and a lot of us don't actually match up to that. A lot of us in this room have more income as a household, have more stature as a family than Jesus's did. And that's okay. That's a gift from the Lord and we should steward that well. But my question for us, Iron City Church, is are we a place that would welcome Jesus's family? Would they feel safe here, loved, ushered in, invited? Would they feel like an outsider? Because what really unites us is something other than the good news of Jesus. So as Mary and Joseph are being faithful to what the Lord has asked them, they're bringing their son up to make this offering to redeem him. There's two things that happen. We're gonna look at this in this text more deeply, but there's two things that happen. Simeon Simeon, and Anna both kind of show up about the same time as the picture I have in my head. 
Simeon comes and grabs the child and Anna comes up and starts prophesying and proclaiming the truth of who he is. And so part of what I want to spend a lot of our time here doing is asking ourselves, what about Simeon and Anna set them apart? How did they not miss Jesus like everyone else? How did they recognize who he was? So the first character we get to here is Simeon. We look at the description of him here in the text. And he was an average man. This description here talks about how he is righteous and devout in verse 25. It doesn't say that he was a prophet or a priest. It doesn't say that he was the son of so-and-so or so-and-so which means he probably didn't have any significance in those kind of ways. But what defines him as a man is two things. And the first thing that we see is that he was righteous and devout. This doesn't mean he was sinless, but this means that he made a point to do all that he could to follow the law of the Lord, follow the way of the Lord. And this word devout, I think, brings a nuance that he was intentional in that. He sought the presence of the Lord. He sought to know God. He was regularly at the temple That is what stood out about this man's character. It wasn't just part of him, but it was what defined him. Does your faithfulness to the Lord, is that largely what defines you? Someone's writing about you in a book or biography. Is that going to be one of the first things that they say? And the second thing that stands out is that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What that means is he was looking for this Messiah, this Savior, this one who would come and redeem all things, make all things new. So how do we wait well? What do we learn from Simeon about how we wait well? The first thing, I think this is the the deepest thing, is that he was a man who lived and breathed in the presence of God. To wait well, we must wait in the presence of God. That's the only place that we will be able to wait faithfully. When we're waiting, when we're longing, when we're yearning, if we look anywhere else, we'll either get distracted, we'll start trying to bring about what we're waiting for in our own time, in our own unction, instead of the Lord's doing, instead of the Lord's power, instead of the Lord's timing. Everyone in Jerusalem at this time would have said that they were waiting for the Messiah. They were looking for the Savior. But we know that Simeon saw Jesus for who he was. I think that's largely because he was waiting in the presence of the Lord. And this waiting is intentional. It's active. Waiting is not something that we passively do. It's something that he is doing often. It's intentional. It's mindful remembrance here. He was longing for it. He was looking for it. All of us in this room are waiting. Some of you are waiting for promises from the Lord. Some of you are waiting for longings to be fulfilled. Some of you are waiting for healing, for deliverance, for freedom. 
for that thing that you think is going to make things better. So my question for us is, what are we waiting on? Do they line up with the promises of the Lord? And what are we ultimately waiting on? Do we see that Simeon had things in right order? He was waiting on the consolation, the redemption of Israel. He was waiting for this savior, this king who would come to bring peace and wholeness, deliverance and freedom, comfort, wisdom, protection. And if we wait anywhere else, then we lose sight of it. I think the question we should ask ourselves as we look at Simeon is, where is everyone else? What doesn't, what's not included here is that he wasn't part of the Pharisees or the Sadducees, or he was doing all these other things to try to bring this about. There are lots of people in this age and time that were trying to bring about the salvation, the consolation of Israel and their own means, instead of waiting on the Lord's timing for it. The next thing I want us to see is the language that he uses here. In verse 29, it says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. I want to look at the rest of that in just a minute, but you are letting your servant depart in peace. Every time I've heard this text preached or I've read it, I've thought Simeon is an old man, but it doesn't say that in the text. We just think that because of the tone of his voice. Simeon's been waiting a long time, I think. No 30-year-old says, oh, Lord, you fulfilled your promise of fill in the blank. Take me now. I'm ready to go. Right? No, I believe Simeon had heard this promise from the Lord a long time ago. And he'd been waiting for years. Sometimes it's good to have a holy imagination, to put ourselves in the seat of him. He'd been groaning, he'd been longing, he'd been wondering, he'd been doubting, wrestling. God, it, I, I, know, I know that you told me this. I know that your spirit promised me this. Where is it? I've seen friends die. I've lost loved ones. I've spent so many years here at this temple while other people succeed in other ways. How long, Lord? How long? Wrestling, grieving, doubting are all okay things to do when we're waiting. They're, they're fitting, they're normal, they're part of being human. But what stands out is that Simeon was doing this in the presence of God. He wasn't forsaking the temple, but he was going to the temple more and more as he waited, as he groaned, as he longed. The beauty for us, brothers and sisters, is that the temple is not where the presence of the Lord dwells anymore. Not, not some physical temple at least. But the temple of the Lord is me and you. All those who are trusting in Jesus. The, the spirit of God dwells in us. The veil has been torn. We have access to the Father. To enter into his presence, we simply must stop and listen. Sit in his word. Call upon him. Talk to him like a friend. Plead with him like a father. Sit and wait to hear his voice.
So I don't know what waiting you came into this room with, but my question for us today, one of my questions is, are we waiting for those things, for those longings, for those groanings in the presence of the Lord? I know a lot of you are wrestling with things and doubt, hurt, wounds, all kinds of things. You're trying to bring together the, the promises of the Lord that you have heard and received and the reality of this present broken evil age. And that's good. That's okay. People talk about that being deconstructing. You can put all kinds of different terms on it. But what, what has to happen is that we, we don't do that separate from God, but we do that with the Lord. We wait and wrestle on his promises in his presence. Because God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. That's why this word, this Bible is so important. When we read it, we hear over and over and over and over and over and over and over again how God keeps his promises. Simeon was familiar with this. He knew the promises that had been fulfilled and he knew that Christ was coming. He knew a savior was coming. He was waiting for that. It doesn't mean he felt it every day, but he knew it in his bones. Before we look at what he promised and Mary and Joseph's response, I want us to see one other thing, a little sidebar on the Holy Spirit. I try to sit in a text and wrestle with it before I preach it. I'm not just preaching to you, but I'm preaching to myself every time I get up here in this podium. I think one of the things that struck me as I walked through this text was the way that the Holy Spirit was working in Simeon's life. It says, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. In verse 26, it says, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Simeon was a man who knew God's word, but was led by God's spirit as well. And I want to recognize, I think Simeon is set apart in the narrative of the scriptures. The the Lord has spoken a particular word to him and given him a particular promise. I don't think that is necessarily normative. But here's what is true, is that the spirit of God is fully in us even more than it was, than he was in Simeon. All of us who have been raised with Christ are perfectly full. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. And you cannot look at any New Testament character and not see that their life is led and guided by the Holy Spirit and the Word of the Lord. We are to be people who are full of the Word and the Spirit, who are worshiping in spirit and truth. And we, as a church globally, do a horrible job at that. We are either full of the Spirit but have no guidance from the Scriptures, or we are full of the word, but numb to the voice of the Holy Spirit. I just want to say, I'm not good at this, but I want to get better. I want to be a man when people describe me as someone who is righteous and devout, but who is full of the Holy Spirit because they see the Spirit of God leading me and guiding me. I think often I don't experience that because I don't stop and listen. We FaceTime a lot in my household because uh, we don't live near any of our family. And so FaceTime is a really great gift, but I I hate one feature of FaceTime. And it's this, that when I'm talking, it mutes the other person. 
And when they're talking, it mutes me. And if you know me, I talk a lot and my family talks a lot. We're a family that talks over each other. That's how we communicate. It's not right or wrong. It's just how it is. But often I'm talking and I see my mom's mouth doing like this. I'm like, ah, neither one of us can hear either one of us. And I believe that's often how it works with the spirit of God. If we're spending all of our time talking, if we're spending all of our time running our mouth, if we're spending all of our time thinking how we're going to figure these things out and spending all of our time talking about how we're going to fix this problem, we're not stopping to be still and listen to the Spirit of God in us. Then we should not expect for the Spirit of God to say anything to us. I've just been convicted this week that I don't stop very often to listen to the Holy Spirit that dwells within me. To expect him to do unexpected things like lead me to talk to someone or to pray for someone or to give someone something. All things that are in accordance with the scriptures. If we hear the Holy Spirit say something that is out of step than this, then it's not the Holy Spirit. It might be another spirit, but it's not the Spirit of God. But we shouldn't let that stop us from listening for the voice of the Lord in our life. The Spirit amplifies the Word and the Word directs the Spirit. So my prayer for us is that we're a church that is full of Spirit and truth. So Simeon walks up. I want us to jump back into the picture here. Mary and Joseph are walking up with baby Jesus and I imagine they're not even totally like to the the space where uh, the the offering is going to be given. And all of a sudden, Simeon walks up and he is full of the Spirit. And he knows at this moment that he's waited all of his life for. All of his life for is happening. And the Spirit's saying, that's him. That's the consolation of Israel. That's the Savior. That's the Messiah that your children's children's children have been longing for. And he runs up and he grabs the baby and he begins to talk about how his eyes have seen the Lord's salvation. Jesus is not the one who brings salvation. He is salvation. Salvation is embodied in Jesus. Totally fulfilled, completed, perfectly happening in Jesus Christ. There's no need for external activity going on. Jesus is salvation. Chew on that this week. And he says, you have prepared, Luke's continuing to expand the narrative of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. He said, you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. That would have blown people's minds in the Jewish community at the time. They were not looking for a global savior. They were looking for someone who was going to help them as a people group who are going to lift them up. But really casually, Simon comes in and he lines up with the narrative of Scripture if the Jewish people are actually looking at it. To say that Jesus is coming not just to redeem the Israelites, but to redeem all people, to be a, a light. This word light is revelation. To proclaim the real truth of who God is, our need for a redeemer and a savior in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus is dying. He's coming one day to, to, he's come that day to save and redeem all people. 
And that this will be for the glory of the Jewish people because Jesus has come from them. And here's what I really love. I want us to look at this in verse 33. And his father and his mother, mother marveled at what was said about him. That jumped out to me. Let's recount real quick what's happened so far to Mary and Joseph. They've both seen Gabriel, one of the archangels. We don't know a lot about angels, but from what we can tell, this is one of like the, the biggest, baddest, most powerful angels. He stands in the presence of Yahweh, right? Every time a human sees even the shadow of God, they fall down on their face, crippled with fear and trembling. And Gabriel stands in the presence of the Lord. And they've seen this angel. And this angel, Gabriel, has said, you're going to conceive a child, though you're a virgin. Joseph, you're going to be the foster father of the Lord's child. That's happened. Mary gets pregnant. She goes and has the baby. Shepherds come up and start worshiping this child in a manger saying, hey, angels appeared to us and said that he is the Lord, the one we've been waiting for. But still they marvel. Do we have the heart and mindset of Mary and Joseph that we don't think that we have it figured out? It had to have been tempting for Mary to be like, yeah, I know, he's the savior. I've heard it. I talked to Gabriel, I know. I know more than you do, Simeon. But no, he, they marveled at what Simeon said. Their capacity for the Savior was continuously expanding. Does our picture of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, is it in a box or is it constantly expanding? Are we open to continuously marveling at all the glory and grandeur of Jesus? Because I don't care how long you read this book. I don't care how smart you are, how high your IQ is, how many commentaries you read or how long you even pray. But we cannot exhaust the riches of the glory of God that's revealed in his word and in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So this Christmas season, are you expecting to marvel at Jesus? Are you marveling at Jesus as you wait on him? It's my prayer for us is that we continue to marvel at Jesus, that we continue to ask him to enlarge the the gravity of what he's done and what he's doing. That he will some way take what is evil and make it our good. He'll take tears and turn them into joy. I don't believe these are just figures of speech, but it is a coming eternal reality. There'll be such peace that lions are eating grass. These are marvelous things that we should meditate on, that should stir up in us a hope and expectation for a day that is coming. So then Simeon continues to talk to Mary and has a little sidebar with her and says, hey, your heart's gonna be pierced. Well, that's not really what you wanna hear. But it's this foreshadowing of that this salvation does not come without a price. We shouldn't celebrate the birth of Jesus without remembering the death of Jesus. Amen? And that's what Simeon's doing. He's celebrating the birth of a Savior while saying, hey, but a day is coming. 
where he will bear our iniquities. That his transgressions will be on, that our transgressions will be on his shoulders. It's by his wounds that we are healed. As Mary cries tears of sorrow at the loss of her firstborn son, we should grieve at the cost of our salvation and rejoice at the finality of it. Are we waiting for that salvation? Are we waiting for that hope? At the same time as Simeon's grabbing this baby and proclaiming that he is going to be the salvation of all of the world, a light to the Gentiles and glory to the Israelites, Anna comes up. What a woman. What a woman. She is widowed after seven years. She has suffered greatly. Wants to return to this theme of waiting as we wrap up. She has suffered greatly. It is a horrendous and painful thing in this day and age to lose a spouse. It's really probably my greatest fear. But in this time, as a woman, it was not just the loss of the one that you love the most or companionship or friendship. It was the loss of protection, power, voice, money, income, safety, security, really anything. It was up to the generosity of other people to protect you and care for you as a widow. And Anna's response to this tragedy and calamity was to look to the Lord. It says that she did not leave the temple. I, I, I don't think she had a house at the temple, but I think what that is, is just a picture, it's a euphemism that she was there day and night, day and night, fasting and praying. Spiritual rhythms weren't something that was a large part of her life. That was her life, waiting for her redemption at the temple in the presence of God. The Lord was present with her, and the Lord was grieving with her, and the Lord was encouraging her, and the Lord was reminding her that a day was coming of healing and redemption. If you're here and you've suffered greatly, if you're despairing, if you're longing, if you're hurting, wait for the Lord's healing in his presence. There's no better place. The text actually says that Anna was at the temple for 84 years. I think a lot of times they read that and say, well, that's too long to live. And so it probably meant that she was 84 years old when this happened. But regardless, she was a woman old, old in her age at this time, in this place. And she was a prophetess. I mean, she spoke often the wisdom of God to the people in the temple. People knew her. And so she comes out and she begins to tell everyone that will listen that this is the Messiah, the redemption of Israel. The people who are listening says this, to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. It's not an insignificant comment. Hundreds, if not thousands of people were probably coming up and down from the temple that day. But some of them were really waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, for the healing of the nations. 
And they stopped and they listened. They heard the word of proclamation that Anna had for the people. So my question that I want to end with us is, are we waiting well? We've talked about that, but what are we waiting on? What we wait on is what we hope in. What's the thing that we think is going to make all the bad and broken and ill in this world right? And there are good things to long for in this world. Friendship, a spouse, a career that feels meaningful, health. Those are good desires that the Lord has given you. But that cannot be the thing that we ultimately hope in and that we ultimately wait on. No, we should be waiting on King Jesus. That's been what has been most convicting about this text as I've walked through it this week, last week. What am I really waiting on? Am I so, so caught up in the busyness of this day, this week, that I lose sight of looking forward? Is my life more shaped by the urgent than it is the eternal? What we believe as followers of Jesus Christ is that Jesus has come and that he's coming again. That we live in the already and the not yet. We have a much more clear picture of who Jesus is and what he's done than any of the people that are here in the story. But his kingdom is in part, and we know in part, but a day is coming when his kingdom will come in full and we will know in full. We will see God face to face. We will see God face to face. Do we really believe that? Is that something that we're bringing into our present moment? That the creator of the cosmos, the one who's made us in his image, who knows every head on our hair, who's ordained every footstep that we walk in, deeply desires to know us. And that he's making a place for us. And the day is coming when we will see him and we will delight in him and we will worship him and he will wipe away all of our tears. And there will be no more war, no more famine, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sin, and no more death. Are we waiting for that day? Are we waiting at all? Are we so caught up in the demands of this present moment that we're never still enough to wait for the Lord in his presence. One of the ways that we wait, one of the ways that we remember is by coming to the table. It's why we need to be here, to hear the word the Lord proclaimed, to sing songs of worship and adoration, to sing through words, reminders of who Jesus is, what he has done and what he will do. That's why we come to this table. Those who are serving the table can come on down and I'm gonna pray for it in just a minute, but we come and we remember at this table. Everyone who is trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation is welcome to come tonight and to remember, to take of the body, to take of the blood. We remember that through his body, through his stripes, we are healed. And that the hope of this eternal joy is sealed by his shed blood.
So I'm going to pray and I invite you to take some time. Take some time and prepare. Take some time and ask the Lord to show you what you're waiting on. Ask the Lord to remind you of what you should be longing for as you partake of the table. Pray with me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power and might and majesty. Father, I pray tonight that we would be stirred to worship you more and more. That our waiting and that our longing would be for you in your coming kingdom more than anything else. Meet us in our despair. Meet us in our doubt. Meet us in our hurting. And remind us of your faithfulness. Remind us of your perfect faithfulness in Jesus Christ. I pray for those who are here tonight and who do not know you. Speak to them now by your Holy Spirit. Draw them to yourself. I pray that they would know all of their waiting and all of their longings are fulfilled only in the person of Jesus Christ. And that through his body and through his blood that you've made a way for all of us to know him. Father, for us who are trusting in the work of your son, remind us tonight. Remind us. Clear our minds of the distractions that we came in here with. Purify the purpose and meaning of this season of Advent and Christmas. As we taste of your body and drink of your blood, renew us and strengthen us to wait another week. Lord, thank you for these gifts. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the table. Thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ. We ask these things all in his name. Amen.